As Josh stated earlier, our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You can find that text on your order of worship. While you're turning there, let me provide some context for our passage this morning. We know that Matthew and Luke are the only two Gospels that focus on Jesus' nativity, but of those two, they each have their own points that they're trying to focus on, different aspects they're trying to communicate about Christ's birth. For Matthew, you may not know this, one of his primary reasons for writing was to reveal to his target audience, which was Jewish, that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of Israel's long-awaited and prophesied messianic king. Of course, the truth that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited, expected, and prophesied messianic king was not received well, was not received with open arms by most. As was the case throughout Jesus' life, throughout his ministry, there were lies and plots and rejections of this truth claim, and they began even at his nativity. And ironically, this hostility was largely internal. It came from the people, it came from the religious leaders, and it came from the rulers, as we see in our text this morning. Curiously, interestingly, the individuals that braced the reality of Christ's nativity were outsiders. It came from the wise men. And these wise men, they were pagan. They were foreigners. And they practiced astrological divination. So why include this information in Jesus' nativity account if the intended audience was indeed Jewish? Why juxtapose these two groups? Because Matthew had an important point he wanted to communicate to his audience, to us, that Jesus' long-awaited and prophesied messianic king was not just prophesied to Israel alone, but belonged to the whole world, and that includes us. So with that in mind, let us go to the Father in prayer. Father, we ask that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts this morning, that you would speak your truth to us, that you would open up this text and Father, we rejoice with the fact that you have called sinners to salvation and you have included us, Gentile sinners, in that call. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth, for saving us, for giving us hope. Impart to us now your truth, and we may not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There aren't many untouched places left in the world. And there aren't many dark places left to observe the fullness of the night sky. I think that's why I was so blown away by the number of celestial objects I could see while camping with my family in Big Bend National Park in fall 2020. You see, Big Bend National Park, which is in Terlingua, Texas, my fellow Texans, is only one of 195 certified international dark sky places designated around the world in which the fullness of the night sky can be witnessed. You guys need to go. And not only did the stars appear bigger and brighter in that part of Texas's heart, but the whole Milky Way galaxy was visible as it stretched out before us from horizon to horizon. I had never seen that before. So apart from seeing the usual suspects like the North Star or the Little Dipper, we saw almost all the traditional constellations we saw the planet Mars, and we saw numerous streaking meteors. 
But the thing that captivated me the most, that captured my attention, was witnessing the vastness, the totality of the starry host all at once. It appeared as if the heavens were performing a play, as everything seemingly flickered and flitted in concert right above us. It was awe-inspiring, and it made me feel small and humbled. Of course, the night sky, it was performing. But I wasn't watching some lame sitcom or some boring, sappy rom-com movie. No, the night sky was performing a cosmic drama featuring God's divine transcendence, glory, and creativity. And the response it elicited wasn't just wonderment, but it also stirred up in me a desire to worship. Though separated by culture, geography, language, and time, the peoples of the ancient Near East likely experienced the night sky in a similar fashion, with wonderment and a desire to worship. However, their response to the night sky would have manifested itself differently from our response in two ways. First, the starry host wasn't just awe-inspiring entertainment that created wonderment. But for them, it functioned as a medium for communication with the divine. It served as a means to understand the God's will, to make sense of the events of the world and their place within it. Second, their worship would have been directed toward the starry host itself, since most ancient peoples believed that the stars were gods, or that they were parts or aspects of gods, or that they were actually the homes or the dwelling places of gods. For the wise men, this would have been no different, except that on this particular interaction with the cosmos, during this particular time in history, these astrologers were being directed by the true Lord of the starry host. You see, the wise men, unbeknownst to them, were participating in God's plan in being sent on a divine mission. They were being sent by divine grace and providence to have an encounter with a real divine being, with the true creator of the heavens and the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, my brothers and sisters, without the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would all be lost and living lives of unchecked sin and misery. Without God's grace and mercy, we would be chasing after the stars, both literally and figuratively, either seeking after other gods, seeking after other people as though they are God, or seeking to live for self as though we were God. But because the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world and revealed himself to Gentile sinners such as us, we are participants in and beneficiaries of the wise men's divine mission from over two millennium ago. And so, beloved, like the wise men, we too were called to seek after the Lord Jesus Christ and in order to worship before him and to offer ourselves to him. Well, what's our starting point? Where do we begin? Well, I have three points I want to share with you this morning, three gospel truths I want to communicate. And the first point is this. Like the wise men, we too were called to seek after the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. Look again at verse 1, as Josh read earlier. It states this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, 
We know the wise men were on a divine mission from God because Matthew's nativity account, it opens up quite strangely. It opens up strangely because those seeking Jesus do not originate from within the borders of Israel or within the walls of the city of Jerusalem, as one might expect, considering the magnitude of the event. But they come from an unlikely people and an unlikely location. While the phrase wise men from the east appears to be about as nondescriptive a statement as you could make, it's actually very loaded. You see, the wise men, or Magoi in Greek, were astrologers that belonged to a priestly class who blended astronomical observation with astrological interpretation. And this class of people held religious and political roles and authority within their own region. Most likely, these figures came from one of the great cities found in Babylonia or Persia, though it's possible they came from Arabia because the gifts that they present from Jesus originate from that place in the ancient world. If from Babylonia or Persia, which I think is most likely, then this visit is actually significant and scandalous. But it's not significant or scandalous because this was the first foreign visit that these people ever made. On the contrary, there are numerous other ancient accounts of Magi visiting all kinds of foreign countries and rulers. No, it is significant. It's scandalous because of who was ruling Babylonia and Persia at this time. Rome's mortal enemies, their eastern enemies, the Parthians. You see, Parthia and Rome had been at war with each other for 50 years before Christ's birth. And the border between these two ancient superpowers was close to Judea and was the territory that Rome and Parthia fought over. So not only was this journey for the wise men long, since it likely took their camel caravan several weeks to reach Jerusalem if they left a city like Babylon, and this journey was full of peril, from climate and geography issues to animal and bandit encounters, but for Parthian magi to enter Judea, a Roman client kingdom, presumably uninvited and to honor a future rival king, would have been seen as totally seditious, total seditious activity by Rome. Not to forget to mention this would have been dangerous for King Herod, who was appointed as client king by the Roman Senate to rule over Israel. He would have felt threatened and scared on multiple sides. He would have felt scared from the Parthians, from the Romans, and from this newborn king. So it's no coincidence Matthew joins together the phrases born in Bethlehem of Judea and in the days of Herod together within this opening verse. While providing location and dating information, it is more than that. Biblically speaking, Herod was a royal imposter. And the person the wise men sought out stood in stark contrast to him. You see, Herod wasn't even born in Bethlehem of Judea. He was born in Idumea, which is in south Israel. And he wasn't even Jewish at all. His father was Edomite, and his mother was Nabataean. He was Arabian. So for the Magi to come to a land seeking a future king, which is politically and militarily at odds with their own, as well as governed by an imposter king appointed by their own enemy, it could have cost them their very lives. So all of verse 1 serves to underscore the magnitude of the question they ask when they arrive in Jerusalem. And they said, 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. While this class of people were respected prognosticators, what a risky question to ask in Jerusalem. After all, this was the capital and the location of Herod's palace. However, even if they thought this future king was Herod's own son, this was still dangerous. Why? Because history is replete with examples of kings murdering their own family members in order to thwart their succession. Herod himself, you may not have known this, 10 wives, 14 kids, murdered his first wife, killed his first three born sons, two from his first marriage, one from his second marriage. And this all happened before Jesus was born. This was a dangerous question to ask. But why were the wise men even seeking Jesus at all? And how would they have known to look for this newly born king of the Jews? The best explanation is tied to the great diaspora event that occurred approximately 600 years before Jesus' birth, when the Babylonians destroyed the kingdom of Judah and deported its citizens to Babylon and other eastern cities. After approximately 70 years went by, the Persians then conquered the Babylonians, and some Jews returned home, and some stayed. It is most likely during this period when the Magi became acquainted with the Hebrew scriptures, like Micah 5.2, which is quoted in our text, and other passages that speak about a future messianic king. Josh read in Isaiah 60, he said, A multitude of camels shall cover you. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And from Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, we find this gem. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. But even if Jewish in origin, such texts would have caught the Magi's interest. As divinators, it was their job to interact with all kinds of texts like these, to look for signs, and to make determinations about the will of the gods. That is likely why they were aware of Jesus' own star. And so these pagans were not surprised when it rose, unlike, ironically, Herod and all of Jerusalem. And not only are the wise men seeking this future king of the Jews, but they are earnestly seeking him to pay homage to him, to worship him. And so I ask you, my friends, this morning, what cost are you willing to pay in order to seek out the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to risk your own lives like the Magi? What about giving up something of great value which is stifling your spiritual life? What about giving up something like a job in order to free your Sundays up to worship? What about reaching out to a church friend for accountability in order to break free from a sin pattern that has a hold on you? What length would you be willing to go to seek the Lord Jesus? Which leads us to our second point this morning, and that is, unlike Herod, we are called to seek after the Lord Jesus Christ with sincerity. Verse 3 states, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Opposite of the sincerity and the joy of the Magi, King Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled by the Magi's presence 
their inquiry and this sign, this star. Now, on the one hand, I can understand their concern. I mean, if a bunch of pagan foreigners had come knocking on my door and making lofty claims, I'd probably be a bit troubled too. I don't even like it when salesmen knock on my door asking me if I want new gutters and windows. But after all, this was no small entourage. Unlike what Christmas nativity scenes depict based upon the numbers of gifts brought, while we don't know the exact number of magi that came, there needed to be enough people, enough travelers, to survive this long, perilous journey. And obviously, this was a huge group because it troubled the whole city. But on the other hand, what is concerning is their response to the Magi's inquiry. I mean, of all the people, all the people on the face of the earth, the good news that these Magi heralds bring through this question, it should have given King Herod and Jerusalem great joy, as was expressed by the angel in Luke chapter 2. Because this is no ordinary inquiry or message. This is one connected to prophetic expectations that have been looking for the coming Messiah for a thousand years since the reign of King David. And yet, it didn't bring great joy or great hope or great celebration, but it revealed the ignorance of Herod and the ignorance of the chief priests and scribes. Portions of verses 4 and 5 say this, And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him. On the one hand, because of Herod's ancestry and how he received the throne from Rome, his ignorance of the scriptures isn't surprising. But on the other hand, he is the current king of the Jews, and so his ignorance is alarming. Though not a priest or a scribe, Israel's kings were supposed to be spiritual leaders. So he should have at least been familiar with some of these texts and the purported location of the Messiah's future birth. After all, Kings David and Solomon actually wrote scripture, and Josiah is attributed with even editing parts. Likewise, for the priests and scribes to be included as those that are troubled reveals their ignorance as well, because this prophesied messianic king was supposed to be different than the kings of old, even better than David certainly better than King Herod. But for them not to know or care is telling. It reveals insincerity. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Unbeknownst to the wise men, our first clue that King Herod's seeking of the Christ is insincere is found in the word secretly. You see, where the Magi seek Christ and his star, they seek it publicly. They ask publicly about it. Herod seeks Christ and asks about his star secretly, in a secret place. And there's no reason to do this unless he feels threatened, since this news is supposed to be the best news that Israel has ever waited for. But for Herod, the news of a star signals that his reign is in jeopardy. That's the meaning it had in the ancient Near East. So ultimately, it reveals that his inquiry is insincere and it hides malicious intent, as we find later in the chapter. 
Our second clue that King Herod's seeking of the Christ is insincere is when he asked the Magi to go and search diligently for the child. I, thinking about this, I actually laughed at that statement, but it's a pretty shameless statement. I mean, isn't that what the Magi have been doing this whole time? Go and searching diligently? They're the ones that interpreted the signs. They're the ones that inquired. They're the ones that have put themselves at great risk. It's really a lazy and manipulative question that King Herod, when he tells them to go bring them word, once they find Jesus so that he may too come and worship. Distance-wise, the Magi would have traveled approximately 900 miles, 900 miles across desertous mountain regions using the trade routes of the Fertile Crescent, all the while following a star, a star, to find the Christ. And yet Herod and the priests and the scribes, they were unwilling to travel to Bethlehem within their own borders. You may not know this, but Bethlehem is a whole six miles south of Jerusalem. Six. 900 miles? Six miles. And there was a connected road. It was very well traveled. If they truly wanted to worship this newborn, they could have. But they don't. Because they don't know or they don't care about scripture. They don't know or they don't care about God. They don't know or they don't care about his promises. And so because of King Herod's sin, his greed, the fear of losing his throne, he wrongly responds to Christ's royalty in a befitting way with betrayal. But with the Magi, because they are on a divine mission, because they are being led by divine providence and grace, with sincerity, they rightly respond to Christ's royalty in a befitting way with worship. And this leads us to our third and final point this morning. And that is, like the wise men, we are called to seek after the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship before him, and to offer ourselves to him. Again, verses 9 and 10 state, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We know that the wise men were divinely guided because the nature of the star seems to be more than just a natural phenomenon because it went before them and it came to rest over the place where the child was. While scholars have debated whether this star can be tied back to some astronomical event like the alignment of Mars and Saturn and Jupiter together or whether it was a guiding angel that led the Magi, the point is not whether it was natural or supernatural or a mixture of both. The point is that God wields the universe to make his son, Jesus Christ, known and to be worshipped, whether at his nativity, whether at his resurrection, or whether during his second coming. This has always been God's great goal, beloved, and that's exactly what the Magi realized and did. First portion of 11 says, In going into the house, they saw the child and fell down, and worshiped him. To have an encounter with the living God is to find joy. To have an encounter with the living God is to fall down before him and to worship. I believe that's what the Magi finally realized upon their arrival, that this was no mere human ruler, 
And so they prostrated themselves and they worshiped him. You see, that's what Abraham realized and did in Genesis 17 when the Lord made a covenant with him. That's what Moses and Aaron did in Numbers 20 when the Lord met them at the tent of meeting. That's what Joshua did in Joshua 5 when the commander of the Lord's army presented it to him. That's what David did in 1 Chronicles 21 when the Lord appeared between the heavens and the earth. That's what the elders did in Revelation 4 when they cast their crowns before the one who is seated on the throne. And that's what we are called to do as Gentile sinners who have been grafted into Christ's covenant. We are called to fall on our faces and to worship Jesus. And one day, at the sound of the trumpet, we will. But not only did the Magi worship him, but they symbolically offered themselves to him through the gifts they gave and by their allegiance. Look again at the second half of verse 11 and 12. They state, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. While these items were valuable, they were actually standard gifts given to royalty in the East for use within a royal court. And so it was customary and expected, which is why the Magi brought them. Christmas Day has come and gone, and perhaps you had a similar experience like us. Like us, you bought gifts for your family. But let's be honest, nobody actually really needed anything. And yet your gifts, like ours, and the Magi's gifts, they're an expression of desire. As a symbol, the giving of gifts actually intensifies one's desire for the recipient of those gifts. To not give gifts because they don't need anything dishonors them. So when we worship, when we give sacrificial gifts to Christ, we are not adding to his glory as though he needed anything. No, we are sincerely saying that Christ, he is my treasure. Not gold, not frankincense, not myrrh, not this or that. When we give gifts, we are saying that we treasure the receiver more than we treasure the money or the sacrifice it takes to make those gifts. Which is why the Magi express their allegiance to Jesus when they return home by another way. You see, they had a divine encounter with the Lord of the cosmos and treasure him more than they fear King Herod. For them, there is no turning back now. They have found the Messiah, and now they desire to worship him and to offer themselves to him, not to betray him. You see, my friends, the grand purpose of the redemption is that God is creating worshipers out of his enemies. He did it with the Magi, and he is still doing it now, today. This is his aim, that the nations, all the nations, will worship the Lord Jesus. You see, this is God's will for everybody in your office at work, at your classroom in school, in your neighborhood, and in your home. And he did it for these pagan foreign magi, and he will do it for you as well. And you will find the same thing that they did when they got to the end of the star's path. They found great joy and then worshiped the Lord Jesus, a response befitting divine royalty. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. 
Father, you are worthy of all worship, honor, and praise, and glory. And as your people, we are gathered today to confess that. We ask, Father, that you would make us into a radiant bride. Give us your spirit. Help us to worship you all our days and to be a light unto the nations. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.